Amen. Test, 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 one, two. Hello, test, test, one, two. Can you hear me? Maybe you can. Can you hear me? Faith says yes. Okay, there we are. Well, maybe it's too much, too much. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There is Junior Church. Oh, you guys don't get to stay in here with me. <laughs> Run while you can. Run while you can. Oh, wasn't Julia a blessing? <laughs> Amen. She's a blessing to me. I know that she's a blessing to this church. And I know you guys probably wish that you heard her voice, but you got me, so <laughs> that's what I think. Oh, how wonderful. What a nice voice to hear in the morning. And then I hear my voice, I'm like, never mind. <laughs> yeah, right. I have to practice that. Well, I'm excited um, to be here today. Um, I'm really excited because Ryan messaged me and he asked, when he asked me to, to uh, speak, he said, would you be comfortable doing communion? And I was like, oh yeah, this, that's really exciting for me. Excited to take communion with you guys. Um, I'm actually going to share a message on communion. Um, I was praying about it. I wasn't really thinking about that. And I was, I was asking God, like, well, what should I share on? I felt like God said that you should share on communion. So I thought, well, that's kind of a, seems kind of basic. We've all taken communion probably. Depending on how long you've lived in church, you've probably taken communion a lot of times. Um, but before I get started with that, I have a little story and a question. There are there any football fans in here? Now, there's some football fans in here, yeah. Does anybody know who um, Vince Lombardi is? Everybody pretty much knows who Vince Lombardi is. Can anybody tell me who Vince Lombardi is? Coach of the Green Bay Packers. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story. 62 years ago, the Green Bay Packers started their summer training. And Vince Lombardi walked in just a few months before they had lost the, their hopes for ha winning the national championship had gone up in smoke. And so he walked into this, this summer training, and does anybody know what he did? He held up a football, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, these were professional players, right? They played their whole life playing with this football. And so he, here is Vince Lombardi. He's seen as now as like one of the best coaches of all time. And he was immediately inducted to the Hall of Fame. He won the first Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers. And so he holds out this football and he says, this is a football. You know, those five words he communicated that they would have to focus on the basics, not the advanced things to be able to win. And just a few months later, they went on to win um, the national championship. This was before the, um, the Super Bowl. So today I'm going to talk about communion. And I believe it's one of those things that it's one of those, this is a football moment. You know, it's something that is so important. In fact, Jesus himself was the one who instituted communion, right? But also, I'm going to tell the story they had been practicing communion for over 1,500 years before Jesus instituted it, before he explained it. So even though you may have heard, you may have heard a lot of these verses, you may have heard these stories a million times, I want to encourage you, just like uh, Vince Lombardi encouraged these professional football players, don't lose sight of the basics. The basics 
are where we win. That's how we win is the basics. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew 26, 17, you can just put it up on the wall, please. You know, many times we fail to focus on the basics at our own peril. Can you think of a time when you found yourself succeeding at advanced concepts only to fail at the basics? One time I was cooking and I was baking this, so I don't even remember what it was. It was some baked good and I was, I was focusing on how long it would be and I was kept watching it, kept looking at it, only to realize when I'd finished that I'd left out the sugar. That was a basic, important ingredient that I left out. And it didn't matter how well I did everything else. It only mattered that I left out the sugar. I could have cooked it too long. I could have stirred it too much. I could have overneeded it. But if I left out this basic ingredient, I ended up with something that no one wanted to eat. No matter how good it looked. You know, you may have had experience with someone swapping the sugar with the salt. I've probably done that a few times as well. Um, so, the communion story is found in a couple places. And Matthew 26, 17, um, we're going to start out. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So you can skip on to 26 through 30. And it says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. So they're, they're celebrating the Passover together. And he blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now on till the day I drink with you anew in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, so this, we've probably heard this story like a million times, right? Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his followers. Um, this is something you may not know. All well-bodied, able Jewish men were supposed to go to the temple in Jerusalem for Passover. So you can think about, it wasn't uncommon for a group of men to come in to celebrate the Passover. So when Jesus went and found a place, told his disciples to go find a place to prepare the Passover, that wasn't uncommon. They rented like lots of rooms. Um, in fact, you think about how many people were in Jerusalem at that time. Okay, so this is one of the... the um, Things that God told the Israelites that every able-bodied man, and I'm going I'm to touch on that in a minute. Okay, so they had celebrated it for about 1,500 years at that time. So they, God instituted it when they left Egypt. The first Passover, we're going to go back and read that, those, that story, was instituted when they left Egypt. So for 1,500 years, they have been celebrating the Passover. So... There are a couple things that Jesus points out in the Passover. They've been doing it a certain way, right, for 1,500 years. I'm sure that they got used to it, like this is how it goes every time. Um, and then he does something different. But first, I want to talk about types and shadows. 
This is something that's really important in the Bible. It's really important in the Old Testament and understanding the Old Testament and how it fits in with the New Testament. Okay, so have you ever wondered why God told the Israelites to celebrate the Passover? You know, the Israelites were in bondage at other times, but God didn't tell them. He didn't institute a whole celebration um, around that, you know, them coming out of bondage, right? Just this one time, right? So one of the reasons I believe this is, was that God instituted it is because of something called types and shadows. Hebrews 10.1, um, what do you have it in? Do you have it in the New King James? Or do you have it in New Living? Oh, awesome. Thank you. The, it says, the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. You know, Ryan, a couple weeks ago, was talking about this. He was talking about the law. People wanted to go back to the law, and the law not being good enough, because it, even though they were using these things, it was just a shadow. So this is where, this, where we get this idea of types and shadows. A shadow, think about this for a second, a shadow is like light coming off of something. It's not really a reflection, but it's something behind, but it's a representation, right, of what, if you see someone walk around a corner, you see their shadow, you know they're coming, right? So it's, it's something, if you saw a shadow, you would know that something real was associated with that shadow, right? Okay, so there are a couple other things about shadows, though. It's never as good as the real thing. And if you were started saw someone's shadow, you wouldn't begin speaking to their shadow and follow them around, like just talking to the shadow. That would be look weird, wouldn't it? Um, and it's never as clear as the reality. When we look at a shadow, no matter how close the light can be and how closely related the shadow is to the real thing, it's never the perfect clarity, is it? Okay, well now we're going to go to Hebrews 8, 4. This is also talking about uh, shadows. It says, and it's talking about Jesus, and it's saying he's our, our great high priest. And it says, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, but now he has obtained a more excellent, talking about Jesus, he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as Jesus is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, God says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Okay, so it's explaining that the entire law was a copy and a shadow of how things were supposed to happen in heaven. You with me so far? This, is this making sense? Okay, so the reason God put this forward as something for them to celebrate. See, the Jews will tell you today that it's about them leaving Egypt. 
But I put forth to you today that it was never about them leaving Egypt. It was always looking forward to Jesus coming. It was always looking forward. God was not looking at the Egyptian, them coming out of slavery. God was looking at Jesus coming, leading us out of slavery. Because Jesus is our Passover lamb. You know, just like John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's speaking in a way that the Jewish people would understand. Look, here is the lamb. This is what it's always been about. For 1,500 years we've been doing this. This is the real, the shadow, the person's come around the corner. This shadow that we've been engaging with for 1,500 years has become the real person. This is the embodiment of God. So, God wanted them to know when the time came what to look for, right? So, he's given them all these pictures of himself, like what, who Jesus would be, what Jesus would look like. And so, instead of engaging with God, instead of seeing this as actually a shadow, they saw it as the real thing. This is the real thing. This shadow that we're doing, that we're engaging with, of the law, of um, Passover, these things are, the, this is it, you know? And so when they saw the real thing, they rejected Jesus. Many times we look at things in our life, and especially communion, and I think that we don't engage with the real thing. We're, enga- we're engaging with communion, we do it, it's, it's something that we take part in, but we're not engaging with what Jesus really did, who Jesus really is. A lot of times we're just like, this is the real thing. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Okay, so now we're going to go back, because in verse 9 in uh, Hebrews, the chapter in Hebrews uh, 8, it was saying, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand, to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So in Hebrews 9.8, or 8.9, sorry, um, God said that he started the first covenant when they left Egypt. So on the day they left Egypt, that was the first covenant. So what was the first covenant? It was Passover. Okay? So, because a lot of times we see it as like when the Ten Commandments came down. But in Hebrews it says it was actually Passover was the, was the first covenant. Okay, so now we're going to read the story of when that first covenant took place. And it's found in Exodus 12, verse 1. We'll start. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Okay, so something else I want to point out. God said, okay, look, new year. Here's your new year. Here's your first day of the month. Here it is right here. On this is the first day, this is the new year. You know, when we have a new year, we fo- like that becomes a focus. You know, we like, oh, what am I going to do in this new year? You know, who am I, you know, what am I going to lose weight or whatever? You know, we choose these things to focus on in the new year. Well, God tells them, you're my people, this is your new year. This is your beginning right here. This is where the focus of your whole existence needs to focus on this, the new year. Okay. So, think about this in arrears. We can see 2020, but they could. They thought it was had to do with leaving Egypt was their new year. But we know that they encountered way more problems than leaving Egypt. Their problems weren't over. Their problems were over when Jesus came. 
Anyway, um, okay, so this is your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man should take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You must take it from the sheep, or you may take it from the goats. Now you can keep it, now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on two of the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall, not, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Okay, so there is so much symbolism here. There's so much that God told them to do, very specific and God's being very specific, but they probably have no idea. Like, why is God telling us to do this stuff? We have no idea. And a lot of times, this, it, it comes into this. Like, I grew up taking communion. I had no idea why I was doing it. It's like something we do. Okay, here we go. Little, little cracker, little juice. Here we go. You know? It's a lot of times we get in these things, and God has very specific reasons for doing specific things. And then we, it just like goes totally over our head, and we let that um, stop us from finding out more, from pressing in and finding out more. Okay, so I want to go through some of these things, some of these symbols. Okay, so one thing I want to point out is each lamb is for each house. So there's a lamb for every house. It's not for the congregation. It's not for a big group. It's for you. Sometimes we see, because we believe as Christians that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is for you. Jesus isn't just for Ryan or for Plumtree or for this nation, but Jesus is for you. Jesus is for your family. And there's enough of him to go around. You know, a lot of times I think that we push ourselves back and we're like, well, you know, that's good for you. That's good for you guys over there. Um, that's good for those people I see on TV, um, but I don't know, I don't think Jesus is like personal to me. But that was a point that, that they were told, each, a lamb for each household. Okay, another thing is that the lamb would be without blemish. We understand that that meant, that was like a picture of sin. So it was a, the lamb was sinless. Also, it says that you um, keep it until the 14th day, then the whole assembly of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So everybody come, comes out. Everybody come out. We're going to all, like mother, father, the kids, we're all going to watch our little lamb that we've been taking care of for a short period of time. We're going to watch them kill it. And just think, like, God set this up so powerful. You know, they would have killed 20,000 lambs. You know, just the, just the onslaught of the blood 
And like, I've butchered animals before, but I've never butchered thousands. And just, you know, you know six chickens is enough for me. <laughs> you know, once you get to six, you're like, oh my gosh, do we have to do this anymore? You know, this is, this is enough killing for me. I'm happy to go to McDonald's. Thank Jesus that the system is not the same. But, you know, God... He wanted them to take part in this, not just like, okay, well, we're going to go take, we're going to go take care of the lamb. We'll be back. You guys stay here. You know, he wanted everyone to see it. And then, so then it says, and then they shall take some of the blood. So they took the blood and they put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Because so we have this, I grew up with this picture of them with a, um, like a one inch, um, a paintbrush. They're like painting it on the door. Like, have you ever grown up with that picture in your mind? Like painting it. And so I saw a video of them doing it. And so they they took this hyssop, and they and it's like weeds. And they like it's a ball of weeds, and they take it, and it looks more like something that you would. I don't know, get whipped with or something. It looks more like a whip, honestly. And they'd take it and they would, they didn't do this thing that we think of. For some reason, I always grew up thinking they did this kind of, this kind of little dance thing. They went whack, whack, whack. So they created like three points. If you traced it, if you looked at the door, you'd look like someone did this. They, so they were painting a cross here for 1,500 years. These people have been taking the blood of the lambs and painting it, the cross, on their door. So then it says, don't eat it raw, so don't eat the lamb raw, or boiled with water, but roasted in fire. And that's a picture of God's wrath burning against Jesus. The wrath of God was placed upon him. And it says that none shall remain until morning, and then it'll be bur- the rest of it will be burned with fire, like it was, uh, he was utterly consumed with the fire of God's wrath. All of the wrath was put on him. None was left. And so then, then we're going to carry on in verse 12. Thank you. Thank you, maestro. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast for an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your house. So leaven is a picture of sin. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day into the seventh, that person should be cut off from Israel. And think about that for a second. Like, that's a pretty serious offense. Like, you're not one of us anymore. We're, you know, whatever, excommunicating you, you know, whatever. You got a little bit of leaven in your, you got some <laughs> quick rising dough. Um, so, uh, on that first day, there should be a holy convocation. And on the seventh, there shall be a holy convocation for you. No, matter, no manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. 
So you shall first observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at the evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month in the evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a stranger or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. You shall observe this thing as an ordinance to you and your sons forever. It'll come to pass when you come to the land that the Lord has given you just as he promised. Then you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their head and worshiped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Okay, so I want to point out just a little, little bit of um, Hebrew here. So the word Passover is the word Pesach in Hebrew. Um, that actually does not have a good translation in English. Um, William Tyndale came up with the word Passover for this word. So in a lot of other languages, they just transliterate Pesach because they don't really like... Um, the idea of Pesach is something that's greater than just like Passover. So in some translations, in fact, the oldest Old Testament translation... Um, it's actually translated protect so instead of Passover. So and it makes more sense because I've read these verses before and it's kind of like, how is God passing over but also coming in and stopping the destroyer but he's passing over? But actually, if you substitute the word protect, it makes a lot more sense. And it says, when he sees the blood and lint on the two doorposts, the Lord will protect the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. So that makes more, a lot more sense as protection as something that's like, like skipping over, like he passed over them. Anyway, that's just a, that's a free Hebrew little thing. Okay, so Psalm 105.37 tells us more of the story. And actually, this is a psalm of David. And he actually wrote this psalm when they went to go get the Ark of the Covenant. So he wrote this song and he gave it to Asaph. And the Psalm 105.37, you got it? Oh, yeah, awesome. Amazing. He, God, also brought them out. It's talking about the, it, this is a long story. It's like a song that's also a story of all their history. And so it's talking about the Israelites. And it says, God brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. So David tells the, like the rest of the story of what's happening. When they came, after they ate the Passover meal, the shadow of what was to come. They came out and there was none feeble among them. And you think about being in slavery. They were in slavery and then 
because Moses came and said, let my people go, if you remember the story, like Pharaoh told them that they would have to go and get the straw in the middle of the night. So they're working night shifts and day shifts as slaves. Like you're double slaves. You know, you go get the, the stuff that was provided for you before, you're going to have to work twice as hard. So they were probably, even healthy people were probably feeble. You know, those, those people that have worked outside and you, you hurt your back or whatever, and you're like, oh my gosh, do we have to do this again? You're you know, working all night or whatever. There was none feeble among them. That was a, that's an amazing miracle. That's an amazing miracle. Okay, so do you see that Jesus is in the Passover? Like as Christians, it's hard not to see it. Like how much Jesus is in the Passover. Um, he, so he is the blood on the doorposts. He is the hyssop, the picture of scourging. And he is the unleavened bread. And now we're going to go back to Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples. Okay, so at the end of the meal, Jesus takes unleavened bread. And they believe that this is called in, um, it's actually a Greek word. They call it now the afikomen. Um, so today, if you go to a, a Hebrew house, a, a Jewish house, they'll take three pieces of matzah and they'll take the one out of the middle and then they'll break that one and they'll show everybody like show it around it's kind of like if you ask little kids who are jewish they'll say like this is their favorite part because it's kind of like a big show it's like oh look we're gonna take the one out of the middle and we're gonna break it and then we're gonna hide one piece of it so they go and they hide it and then the children go look for it and if you ask a jewish person today and if they're honest with you they will tell you they have no idea why they do this. They do not know why they do this. They argue about it all the time. Different Jews have different reasons that they do it, and they all make up something. They've just made something up. Like some of them will say, well, it's, um, it's Abraham, and it's Isaac, and it's Jacob. And it's, um, some say that it's heaven and earth and us. Like these are what these three things mean. So they know that everything has meaning, but they've come up with some meaning they don't really. It doesn't make any sense that they break it or hide it. But afikomen, it's been argued by scholars, is a Greek word, and it means the one who has come. And so I, they, they believe that this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus may have instituted this, and then this somehow amazingly got into like what they, they practice today. People don't really know how this came about. But... He took the, the three pieces of matzah, which we see as Christians, the God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so he takes the middle one out, and he breaks it. And that's what we have as our communion bread. And he says, take and eat. This is my body, and it's broken for you. Okay, so Jews will take it, and they'll hide it in linen, and then the children will go find it. And actually, some different groups, um, Sephardic Jews, will say that it's in remembrance of the Passover lamb. So they don't really know why they do that either, because they don't have a lamb anymore. So they'll say, we break this in remembrance of the Passover lamb, which is kind of cool. Um, also, some Jews will say, oh, the children have stolen this, stolen it. And they said that actually they believe that maybe they instituted the idea of children stealing it 
um, because they say, well, they stole Jesus' body away because they like subconsciously, like originally, they knew what it was about. It was about Jesus. And they're like, yeah, this is good, but he stole, you know, he didn't really raise from the dead. Actually, something interesting I found in studying about this, that there was so much argument at one time of the Jews in Rome that all the Jews were expelled from Rome, whether they were Christians or not, because there was so much arguing about whether Jesus was really the Messiah. So at that time, like, there, was a lot, there was like a lot of upheaval in the early church days with the Jews about whether Jesus was the Messiah. Enough that like, they, ha- they were thrown out of Rome. Like, get rid of them, they're making too much noise. Okay, so to this day, the Jewish people don't really have a good explanation for why they do this or what this means, but it means a lot to us because this is our communion. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So we know that that's what this picture is. Jesus said, This is my body. It's broken for you. The law couldn't do it. You know, they were looking to the law and believing that because they were a son of Abraham, they were good, right? Then they're like, this is what makes God happy. We do the law and this is good enough. But God knew the law couldn't do it because of our flesh. We can't live up to the law. We can't do it. So he sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, so he condemned, God condemned sin, not us. Okay, so another, just a little, another little point. Jesus fulfilled the law completely. In Matthew 5, 17, he said to the religious leaders, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Something that I think that we as Christians, a lot of times we want to talk, go back and talk about the law, but it's like talking about someone's shadow. It's like talking about someone's shadow with them standing in the room. It's like, we, I've never talked about anyone's shadow with them standing in the room. That's kind of weird. You know, it's like, oh, but we're going to go talk to the shadow now. That's the important thing. We need to get back to the shadow. We need to get back. We need to focus on the shadow some. No, that's crazy. You know, we, it's not the shadow of the things but these shadows are pictures. It's not like, I wouldn't also say, well, that person's shadow does not matter anymore. Their shadow is of no importance because they're here. Well, the shadow has equal importance. It's part of you, you know, unless you're, I don't know, uh, what's his name from uh, Peter Pan? Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Unless you're Peter Pan, you know, your shadow's always connected. Um <laughs> Romans 8.4 says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, nor can be. Okay, so I'm taking you to a new place. 
But this is the reason that people are so confused and focusing on the law. Like, is it the law? Or is it grace? They don't understand because they're focused on the things of the flesh. For the same reason that the Jews missed Jesus. They were focused on the things of the flesh. They weren't think, focused on the things of the spirit. They didn't understand that. So they were like, oh, this is the important thing. Like, do you do this or do you not do this? You know, or what, you know, What's the, you know, you shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath because they're focused on the things of the flesh, these rules. These are the important things. They miss the, the Sabbath rest who is Jesus, you know? So we want to be in the spirit. We don't want to be in the flesh. John 4, 23 says, but the hour is coming. Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. And he says, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus says that the people in the past have been worshiping in the flesh, but now is coming that they're going to worship me, the worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So we want to be in the spirit and not in the flesh, So when we look at the law and we're like, we have to do these things for God to be happy with us, we're doing things in the flesh. They may be seemingly good things. Oh, I don't lie. Oh, I don't do these things. I, well, I've never, you know, it's just like the, um, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, oh, how do I go to heaven? And Jesus said, oh, you know, follow the law. Because the point was, Jesus was like not going to ruin it for him. He was, the point was to show him, you can't do it. And he's like, oh, I've done all that. I'm good. And so Jesus just took one thing. I'm sure he had lots of things that he hadn't done. But he just took one thing that was his problem. He's like, oh, yeah, no problem then. Just sell all you have. You know, and then he went away sad because he, he loved riches. So the thing is, a lot of times we focus on the physical and we are like, okay, I'm going to take communion. And we're not focusing on the spiritual power of communion. Okay, if you'll go to 1 Corinthians 10, 16, please. And it says, the cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we... Though many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Okay, so this is one of those verses where a lot of people, depending on your background, have disagreed about. Like, is it really the body of Christ? Is it really the blood of Christ? Is it just a symbol? Is it gets, does it get substituted? But see, the reason for that argument is because we're focused on the flesh and not on the spirit. We're like, is this... You know, does this really, the, you know, is the flesh really turning? Are we, are we focusing on what's in around us, what we can see, taste, touch, sense, and smell? You know, it's like this are earthly senses and not the spirit realm. Okay, so I want to talk about symbolic versus prophetic. Because a lot of times, and it's true, we say these things are symbols, right? This is symbolic of the body of Christ. It's symbolic of his blood, right? 
where we don't say that it's his actual blood, it's his actual body. But I want to put forth to you that that is not the full understanding of what communion is. That it's actually prophetic. Um, we see things, and I'm going to explain this with, with this story. Flags. So we've got flags hanging up all around the room. And a lot of times, you'll hang an American flag at the 4th of July or whatever, and that's you're, it's symbolic of your patriotism, right? So it's a symbol of how you feel you know, you're proud to be an American. Proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free, kind of. Um, <laughs> um, we should be. That's the way we were founded. Um, but we also see people that go around and burn flags, right? That's symbolism of their hatred for a country or whatever. What happens is, these things are symbols, but they're not prophetic. There are a lot of people that have burned American flags, but America hasn't gone down yet, right? It hasn't been destroyed yet. So symbolic means, so I looked up the, the definitions of these two words, and it means serving as a symbol. And prophetic means accurately describing or predicting what will happen in the future. So I want to show you that communion is not just a symbolic act. It's a prophetic act. 1 Corinthians 11.23, this is Paul teaching about communion to the Corinthians. And they were having all sorts of problems, not just with communion, but they had problems with this as well. And it says, For I received from the Lord, which I delivered to you, that Jesus, the same night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, I'm going to stop right there. Okay, Jesus is showing that this is a prophetic act that he's taking. This is in the spirit and not in the flesh. If you go to Isaiah 53, 4. It says, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. So that is the picture, the prophetic picture of his body. It's broken for us for what? For healing. So this is, a, this is not just symbolic. It's not just a picture of our healing. It's prophetic. It's our real healing. This, the blood is not just symbolic of us being forgiven. It's not just a picture of us being forgiven. It's a real representation. It's a prophecy. We are forgiven. Okay, so I want to talk real quick about the unworthy manner because I was raised and understanding like, oh, I don't want to take it in an unworthy manner. 
It says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Okay, so I always wondered about this unworthy manner. Like we were talking, like don't, don't do it in an unworthy manner. And like if you have sin in your life, you shouldn't, you shouldn't take communion. But if you look at this, first of all, think about this. All 12 of Jesus' disciples partook in what we call communion. I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, you know, Peter, who denied Jesus, went on to deny Jesus that night. Um, also, Judas, who went on to betray him, he also partook in communion. Jesus was not like, get that out of your hand. <laughs> Put that down. <laughs> you know, think about that. Okay, so... So the focus is on Jesus. The focus isn't on us, but it says we're examining ourselves. But then what it says is, is that whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment because he did not do what? Not discerning the Lord's body. So the, the point is, it's not about focusing on us. It's focusing on the Lord's body. Well, what does the Lord's body mean? I just read the verses in Isaiah 53. He's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's discerning the Lord's body. That's seeing what's actually happening. And that's what Paul says, that many people, many Christians have been sick, many are weak, and many have died because they did not see what was provided for them in the Lord's body. And if, because it's not talking like, it gets confusing, I guess, for us is that the idea of like judgment. We are judging ourselves. Wait a minute, Aaron, where was my focus? Is my focus on me? Or I'm the only one that can find that out. It's only between me and God. Like, where's my focus? You know, am I focusing on myself? Am I focusing on whether I've been a good person this week or whether I've done right? Or am I focusing on what Jesus has done for me already? Am I focusing on what he's paid for in his body? 1 Peter 2.24 says, He who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus took our sins, every sin we've ever committed and ever will commit, on his body. He's paid for every sin. So that we, because of receiving him, have died to sins, might live for righteousness and live in the healing that he's provided. Can I ask for the um, elders to come up? We're going to take communion today. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. And I want us to...
Today, I wanted to focus not on what we've done or not done, not on our problems, but on the solution. And the solution that God has provided for us is this prophetic act. We take this as a prophetic act, not just symbolic, not just symbolizing Jesus' body and Jesus' blood, but as a prophetic act that this is coming inside of me to walk in the power of God. 